Welcome to the Orthodox Podcast. That was Dr. A.Y. Bronstein. And that was Rabbi Binyamin Yudin, L-I-S-W. I didn't know we were we were talking about like our smicha. This is this has been the second time that you've brought up smicha of mine on the podcast. You 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 blazed the trail at Cedar Village before <laughs> my time. You know, you were the rabbi emeritus when I took over. So that 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 is true. That is true. And I appreciate you pointing that out, but not as important, um, I think, as the fact that you are Dr. A.Y. Bronstein. Rabbi doctor, Rabbi doctor. Ra- Rabbi doctor, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Thank I'm you, sorry. I appreciate that. I apologize, I apologize. All right, Benjamin, how are you doing today? I, I am doing well here in sunny Cincinnati, in the Clifton neighborhood, actually Mount Auburn neighborhood. Um, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, for those of you listening at home, you may not know because you don't see us, but today is the first day that Benjamin and I are recording not in the same room. So... If the listener notices a difference in our interactions, in our mannerisms, in our communication style, we're, um, and we're right. not in the same room, so let us know for better or for worse, different or indifferent. Please give us your feedback. Yeah, usually when we're in the same room, it's easier for me because um, if I'm going off topic, AY just kicks me under the desk, and that way I'm, I'm able to get back on topic. Here, he's going to have to signal to me. We haven't worked that out. It's not our communication. But listen, you know what we're trying? It's trial and error. 100%. Let's let's see what happens. And and so let's start today, Benjamin. You know, we've been getting a lot of good feedback from Mm -hmm. um, our previous episodes. And I would like to comment first on, you know, the episode that you just did with um, with Dr. Fisher. It was really great. And, you know, I especially like the point that she was making um, and that you discussed a little bit in terms of, you know, when you make... Um, when you make tzniyas into a superficial thing and that it's just about the external and just about the clothing and just about the, you know, the superficial and the external, then that itself helps feed, feed into the problem. But when you appreciate and teach and understand tzniyas as being something which is more than just about the superficial, meaning it's, a, it, it's, it's about the internal, then that, you know, that helps in terms of, you know, what she was speaking about in terms of body image and all of those other things, because you're really internalizing the message and recognizing that it's not just about dress, but it's about, it's about a way of life. It's about, are you a modest person or not, or not a modest person? And right. one of the ways that it comes out by women and maybe by men also is in terms of clothing and dress, but really, it's not just a woman thing. It's not just a clothing thing. And the more that we appreciate that Sneas is really, um, you know, it's it, it's an idea of, you know, not not announcing yourself, not pronouncing yourself, not, you know, being an internal person and being being with Hashem, then, you know, then a lot of these other problems with the externality and the superficiality of making Sneas into, into a superficiality fall away. So I, I really 100%. appreciate that episode. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't remember where I heard this metaphor from. But somebody likened it to like, you know, when a, when a, um, a head of state or, you know, like a king um, shows up, they always are driven in a beautiful limo. Like, that's important. You can't you can't show up, you know, in a, you know, a, a 1996 gold Toyota Camry. Did I get the year right? <laughs> Did I get the year right? Anyway? 
No, my Camry now is a 2008. Okay. Oh, I'm sure. My Lexus, that was a 2000. It was a pre 911 Lexus wow. RX. Beautiful yeah. car that right now, for the viewer or the listener, um, is right now lying in Lima, Ohio. If anyone wants to go pick it up. But if, I, if anybody happens to be in Lima, Ohio, there's a Lexus there. So if a person, <laughs> it, they, they show up in a, in a beautiful car and everybody's waiting for them, right? And, and if they got out of the car and everybody just continued to stare at the car, it'd be so mun- it was so so weird, right? Because true, the car is important. It, it projects the majesty of the individual. And it wouldn't be appropriate for them to drive in in a in a layman's car. But if you just pay attention to the car, you're 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 missing the whole point. That that's that was a, a metaphor I heard once, and I think really kind of um, talks about how the external is important as an external, and the internal is the icker as the internal. Right, that's, right. That's what I got from it. And I, I want to just address one more thing. Maybe the elephant in the room. I don't know which room the elephant's in because we're in two separate rooms. <laughs> Maybe the elephant is somewhere on the Ronald Reagan Highway. It's possible. Um, and for those of you who are worried, um, you know, that, that Binyamin, you know, did an episode just with Dr. Fish and I wasn't on it. And, <laughs> and, and where the, I, I, the plan is, and Binyamin, please confirm that this is true, that I, too, will have great professionals speaking to them, such as like Dr. Fisher, if we could find someone like her. She's really, you know, very um, unique in her field. But I plan on doing um, an interview um, in the coming weeks. We're not going to reveal what it is. Oh, we're not interesting. reveal who it is either. <laughs> But yeah, but I'll tell you after I do it. Oh my god! <laughs> anyway, we're looking forward to that. So we're going to do some of that. We're going to do some of um, you know, me and Binyam bringing up on our own and interviewing various people, and mm-hmm. um, then bring mm-hmm. it back together. Yeah, hundred percent. I think um, you know, uh, having interviews with individuals, having interviews with both of us, uh, you know, just kind of you know, flexing or you know, tr- creating different dynamics. I think is is good. It's variety, variety for the podcast for sure. <clears throat> no, another piece of feedback that I got was a very important piece of feedback it was not from um, this past episode, but from two episodes ago um, uh, from uh, a very important uh, goddle in my life who has given me feedback since I was a little boy. It's Imi Moirasi, um, who told me that the way I spoke about Ramesh's chuva about um, sci- using a secular psychologist, psychiatrist, um, maybe my my language was not um, respectful enough to Rav Moshe. Um, and of course, that was not my intention. But, um, you know, I, when I when I said that that may have been true back in the time that the tshuva was written, I literally meant that the Metzius was different. And Zichar, if Rav Moshe, you know, were alive today, I, he would have a different statement. I wasn't saying that Rav Moshe didn't really know what was going on. I would never say such a thing. Uh, you know, Moshe was famous for for being very aware of what was going on in the world. That's why his chuvas were were something which were so eiskahalten, um, because you know, he was involved. But I think you were clarifying that. I don't remember you saying it in a in a um, disparaging way. But it's always good to err on the side of you know of caution with these things. I remember once years ago. I'm not going into detail. I, I could be you remember also. I think we were both. Um, I do and- remember. You remember that? I already know we, what you're talking about. Yeah, we're at the same venue, and someone was talking about Rav Moshe in a in, in a disparaging way, and it was very Nabakovitic. And there was someone um, in the audience who got up and he walked out. He made a macha. Yeah. And I told this person after I couldn't walk out at that time for whatever reason. And, for whatever reason. <laughs> right. No, and I, I didn't think it rose to the level that I had to walk out, and maybe it was the wrong thing. And I told him after I said, since you walked out, I didn't feel like I had to. 
Right. So, he, he, he pottered us. I, I mean, he, I think it was for this individual, uh, you know, I think it was, it was a good, it was a good thing that he did. All right. We're going to start getting into details and people are going to guess. So we're going to leave, we're going to leave it alone. Right. Right. Yeah. That was no, a good no, time. I just, tech, you know, I just mentioned to you that it, it could be, we could do, um, we could do an episode maybe of, you know, an add on episode of feedback from original, from previous episodes, because we have been getting, I feel like we have to, you know, give the topics that we've gone through already until now, you know, we have to give them um, adequate attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 100%. The, and the feedback that we've been getting, for example, I'm, I'm, you know, you just mentioned the feedback you got from, from, from your mother. Um, I have a cousin of mine um, who left, left me feedback um, about a previous episode. And it, it was a very good point. And I want to talk to you about it a little bit. I mentioned it to you a little bit off the air. Um, so we were talking about, this was in the episode and the Indian of seeing a from slash Jewish therapist versus otherwise. And we discussed right. a little bit the pros and the cons and the various them, and, you know, that was connected to your interview with Lindsay. Um, and, you know, that, that's an example of a topic that really we could, you could give 10 episodes to that and, and talking about it. But she had a, a specific point, my cousin, that um what was i gonna say i'm losing my train of thought over here um the judgment the judgment judgment, right so she she said you know there's something about going to a from therapist um especially someone who you know but even someone who you don't know and you know let's say she was an example of a woman and you come into this woman's office and she's all put together and wearing a shaitel and dressed up etc and you know that can make let's say a woman let's say the person coming in for therapy you know, let's say her issue that she's struggling with is not feeling so put together and can I know her dealing with a lot of children and not always, um, you know, having herself together, you know, that could be a very disarming kind of thing, not disarming, you know, disarming, I think is used the, the wrong it's way. The fakert, yeah. It could be, um, it could be your defenses can go up right away as a client coming into such a situation where you're like, Wow, here's another from woman who really looks like, even though the therapist may not have everything put together. Well, but many of us we, don't. But right. Many right. of us don't. Right. Review, we spoke about that off the air, and I'll, I'll continue, you know, <laughs> telling you how to <laughs> right, but we, we put on we put on the air because when you're at work, you have to put on, you know, you have to be professional. And mm-hmm. you know, they don't know that maybe 20 minutes before you were, you know, home and things were disorganized, and that you're trying to get this one out the door and you're putting on you know, your shirt at the last, or whatever the case might be, but being, you know, coming to a therapist that is of similar background to yourself, either from women, from men, um, from person in general, and you see them and they look like they really have everything put together. And especially, I would say, I don't know if she said this point, if it's in their home, if it's in the from person's home and you come to their home and it's like, wow, this is an immaculate home, even though you have no idea what's going behind the closet, but it looks like an immaculate home. And it it could be very disconcerting. be like, wow, I can't even talk to this therapist because I feel even more inadequate. Right. So I thought that was a very interesting point. It is. It is an interesting point. I think, you know, that I guess, and I think this came out, in our my conversation with Dr. Armitage and then our talk about it afterward, like that, like my bias to that would be like, okay, so talk about that in the session, you know, that a person that a from therapist should be able to to draw out just like a non from therapist seeing a from person should be able to say, okay, we have this difference, right? You may be feeling these things or, I mean, you can't say exactly like, I've noticed you're 
you're a schlump and you don't have it together. And I do, I'm telling you that I'm not judging you. Obviously that's not a good idea, but that as patients, like if anybody's listening to this, who's hesitant, if you are feeling a sense of intimidation with your therapist, like you should talk about it. Like you should always strive or try to tell your therapist how you're feeling about like the emotions in the room. And for, for me as a psychodynamic psychotherapist, that is so, that's, that's the whole therapeutic relationship. Right. And what I would say is, Benjamin, is I, I agree with you, but I think it's also, and perhaps even more so, it's on the therapist, it's on us to um, disarm, this and I want to use it properly, yes. the client in such a situation, not only with from clients, like, and maybe that's going to be a time for more, you know, self-disclosure. You know, if you see that you have a client struggling with this, obviously not too much self-disclosure, but say, you know what? Yeah, that's a very hard thing. And I have six kids of my own and, you know, a little right. bit just to help them, you know, to normalize, you know, whatever they're going through and, and for them to recognize that it's normal for them and it's normal for you. And we all go through these kinds of situations or uh-huh. scenarios and we struggle with the same thing. And let's, let's work on, you know, and, and then the conversation, you know, you're getting rid of that um, elephant in the room, so to speak, when you're, you know, when the therapist takes the initiative and disarms the client with some, you know, maybe a little bit of a self-disclosure. hundred percent. We, we do have to be constantly taking the temperature in the room, right? If, if you feel like your therapist isn't getting what's going on, you know, you may have to mention it, but it's not really the therapist should be like, you know, seeing how the vibes are and trying to take the temperature of, okay, somebody feels uncomfortable here. What is it that you're feeling or listening to the things that they talk about? If a person is always talking about, you know, I show up to therapy in my snood and, you know, I have like, you know, dried challah dough on my shirt and they keep talking about that. The, the therapist should pick up and say, you've talked about that a lot is, is it, is it difficult to show? Do you think I'm judging you? I'm in my office. I'm dressed right. professionally. Like that, that is our job as therapists and a good therapist will always be on the lookout for something like that. 100%. But let me ask you a question because I know you, you've mentioned a few times and I know you have more um, psychodynamic, you know, you, you went through the, your psychoanalytic training, actually, as you want to use the right well, term. Well, I'm not, no, it's, I, I did not do psychoanalytic training. That's like five years. And oh, you did psychodynamic. Psychodynamic psychotherapy, yeah. You know, why don't you do, okay, you know what? I want to point, you know, the same way you asked Dr. Fisher in the last, you know, so you asked her about PsyD, which I, I thought that was very interesting. And that was a nice, you know, um, that was a nice, um, what's, what, what should we call it? Um, parentheses, and I, a, a good, so I want to ask you about, um, maybe explain to everyone or, you know, discuss the difference between psychodynamic and psychoanalytic and a little bit of your orientation, because that was my question was going to be to you, because that maybe you as a psycho, more of a psychodynamic therapist, you know, at least the things we learn about um, in in these areas is being a bit for the therapist to be a blank slate. Um, You know, maybe not very self-disclosure is frowned upon from what I know in terms of if you're doing psychoanalysis, you know, the therapist is a blank slate. um, So they wouldn't self-disclose at any time. So how do you approach those things like self-disclosure, for example, and, you know, discuss a little bit, if you don't mind, the difference between psychoanalysis and psychodynamic work uh, and which one um, is are you more closely aligned with? Well, psychoanalysis is like a a form of psychodynamic therapy where, you know, the the old trope of the guy lying down on the couch with the, you know, the German therapist sitting behind him, 
uh, writing things down furiously <laughs> with a pipe, you know, like that's, that's psychoanalysis where, yeah, these principles and it, and it's several times a week, maybe three, right. four times that's a, a week. That's a real analysis. That's a real analysis. So, I think, and so you didn't do that. So you didn't. No. You didn't. Ah. No, I did not do that for, for not because I wouldn't want to do that. I would love to do that. But the reason that I didn't do that is because you have to go through your own analysis, which is six, seven years at least um, of several times a week. And you also have to do you, you take courses and study things for, I think, I think this program is five years, the Institute here. Yeah. And so it, it literally ends up costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and um and it's a lot of time. And, 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 you know, if you have the time, if you have the money, I, I think it's very fulfilling and enriching, but I had neither. And I still don't. Um, psychodynamic theory is the idea. It's, it's based on a lot of Freudian stuff, although there are, there are many other analysts that whose ideas are uh, a little less out there. Um, the Neo-Freudian, like the Adler and the Young, like the, the second right. generation, yeah. Right, even Young, I don't I don't know if you consider Young second generation, but like he right. tempered a lot of Freud's ideas and was just much more down to earth. Freud was very prescriptive and directive and Young was not. But anyway, the, it, it's talking about um, less, it's less focused on like, behaviors less focused on cognitive reframing and it's more focused on what are the structures in the mind that the the relationships that the person has had that create the feelings and the motivations that the person has now a dynamic is is something which motivates something else a, a dynamic person is a person that's moving and engaging the idea of 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 dynamite something which explodes that th there are there are things within us that um, really make us feel and view the world a certain way that we're unaware of. And so if we come to a therapist and say, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling anxious, even I have terrible obsessive compulsive disorder, which is, which is a mood disorder, but, but does not seem to have anything to do with just being sad. A psychodynamic therapist will try to understand what are the structures, the way this person views the world that causes these ideas within the person. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, of course, has a piece of that. And of course, psychodynamic therapy also deals, deals with cognitive behavioral um, concepts. And, and one, I mean, Beck was originally, you know, from an analytic school, right? right? So the, um, the idea that uh, there's, there's not, there's a huge overlap between these two fields. But um, it's a question of what you primarily focus on, right? And another really important thing in psychodynamic therapy is the focus on the relationship between the, the therapist and the client, right? right. And, and it's interesting, not everyone knows that, that the, the whole transference and countertransference, that's all psychodynamic right. um, based. That's right. That's right. And I'll, well, I'll put in the show notes with transference and countertransference, but it's, it's, it's something which is extremely important. It's, you know, how the, how the, um, how we as therapists become different people unconsciously in the patient's and the client's life, uh, we become them and they interact with these parts of them through us. Um, right. And we feel that we have the same emotions that come to us from our patients and we, we use those for treatment. Um, you know, it, it's not for everybody. Um, you know, some people get really aggravated with the length of psychodynamic treatment with the struggle to have like 
concrete goals and activities and 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 work and 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 tasks that you can do which which I don't usually prescribe like I'm not I'm not sending people home with worksheets um, and other types of therapy have that much more which gives people a sense of working more Mine so do you more. do you officially market yourself as I know you don't market yourself uh, that's not the right word but do you officially build yourself as 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 um doing psychodynamic work as doing psycho as providing psychodynamic therapy yes. or would you say you do okay yeah yeah I, I mean i i use all these other modalities but if somebody were to hold me down to a specific thing that's what i would say okay okay i think if if anybody if there are any budding therapists out there that are interested in this idea getting um anything written by dr nancy mcwilliams um who yep. i think still teaches at rutgers um she really explains this. In, she has a book called Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, which I, I really like. I think that that's a good way to understand this. Yeah, she's excellent. From the books that I remember from you know back in the day, I remember her. I'm saying I, I think you you've you've obviously done more of her, you know been involved in more of her writings, but I remember the couple of books that I've read by her were very, very interesting. Right, right. Yeah, I like her a lot. Yeah, thank you, Benjamin. Okay, no, I th I think it's important for people to know, you know people to hear about this a little, you know, in terms of various kinds of therapy. And it's not always so important. You know, I think the main thing is when it comes down to it, and I think you would admit this also, that it has to be the right fit. And we spoke about this, you know, when we discussed seeing a from versus non-from. Right. The, the client has to feel that the therapist understands them and that they're able to help them, you know, just putting it simply. That, that's Master. the end of the day, that's what it is. And Master. I think the people who are coming to, to you, and correct me if I'm wrong, and who are staying with you, it's because... They don't care that you do you're and I, what I would say is you're using a lot of psychodynamic theory. Mm -hmm. Using a lot of psychodynamic theory. Are, are you I don't know if you're even you you would say you're doing psychodynamic therapy or using a lot of psychodynamic I'm theory. Not, I'm not sure what well, I'm not sure what the difference put, is. I'm putting a gun to your head. Well, I'm not sure what the yeah. difference is between those two things. I mean, I think that listen, Jung was famous for saying that you should learn all the modalities and learn all the theories and techniques. But when you sit down with somebody, just recognize you're a soul sitting down with another soul. Like you're two That's humans, that. right? So like, yeah, I would say that I probably use more theory. I would say my self-disclosure is a little bit um, a little bit more curtailed, although that over the years, um, I've found that that's not, uh, that rigid boundaries um, when it comes to self-disclosure is not always the right way to be. It, it often is, but not always is. Um, you know, and I, I, I think that, yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. I'm using theory, but, but, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just talking to people. Yeah. That's the way I like to look at it. Right. Okay. Um, but I think we, we went a little bit off topic today, but that's, 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 that's our vibe though. I think that's what we love to do. It is. So in that way, things stay the same being on zoom. That's right. <laughs> also, who decides whether who decides what the topic is? Maybe this is, you know, I, I think it was an important conversation. Um, you know, we were go going to speak about today OCD and OCD and Judaism. And, you know, maybe we could speak about that a little bit and just basically preview our coming episode because I, I, I don't think we could just um, give it an, give it justice um, just in a few minutes that we have left for today. But let's at least speak about it a little bit, Binyamin, if that's okay with you. Yeah, maybe we'll make this a part one. Um, and today we'll just kind of cover um, just like a primer 
of what OCD is, because I, I'll tell you the truth, you know, like I'm not, it's become part of the, like the parlance, like the yes. way people talk about being I'm so okay. OCD, right. I'm so OCD. Yeah. And, and usually I try to like, you know, go with the flow. Cause that's how people talk, but it, it bothers me because I treat people with OCD and it is a living Gehenna for people who have it. You know, it's like somebody saying like, oh, she's so skinny. She's anorexic. That's really inappropriate to say. People it that. bothers me also. And I have a few clients now um, who are OCD and it is a living Gehenna. Um, it's vicious. And I actually have, you know, I mentioned this in a previous episode. Um, it came up that I have, you know, a Christian client now who their OCD is very much religious based. And, you know, when people throw that term around, it's, you know, yeah, it, it, it's very cringeworthy. Yeah. But more than that, I think sometimes, um, I think it's a defense mechanism because saying I'm OCD has become so much of a parlance of a usage that people say it meaning to, they're, they're really being like, you know, when you go for an interview and they say, you know, tell me some of your weaknesses. Right. And you really say, you, you say, my weakness is that I just can't stop helping people right. and I have no self-care, right? That's the <laughs> classic answer, you know, that basically- I have no work-life balance, right. No, no work-life balance. I, I work 24-7 and then they right, just like, right. right? So when people say they're, I'm so OCD, I feel like it's a defense mechanism. They're basically trying to say like, okay, this is my mental health disorder that I'm so quote unquote OCD, which everyone knows doesn't mean OCD nowadays. Right, it means right. I'm so into cleaning and being clean and being organized. Oh, no, I'm so OCD. I'm sorry. Like, you know, but I, I feel like it's a defense mechanism against, um, you know, there's, there's something deeper going on. That's that my sense. opinion. It's a way of displaying something. It's like a, like a humble brag, as they call it. Yeah, displaying. That's excellent. Right? Yeah. Is, is that one of Freud's secondary defense mechanism? It sounds like it. It sounds like it to me. It sounds like it to me. That and uh, doing drugs, I think, which Freud was was a big fan of. A lot of defense mechanisms start with a D, so we're going to include displaying as one of them. Okay, we'll do it. Whether it's true or not doesn't matter. It is in orthodox podcast land. It is. And we both live in Amberley. And if you, for those of us who've read the book, the Amberley book, yeah, Freud's daughter Anna Freud Rollman lived in Cincinnati. Wait a second, that's Roman Estates? Roman Estates. She married this guy, Roman. I had no idea. No, sorry, she was Freud's niece. Freud's niece, but okay. she remembered her uncle, Freud's niece. Yep. Okay, okay. And here's another very interesting piece of information, which has nothing to do with anything. But Freud's nephew was the inventor, the, the, the harbinger of the entire concept of public relations and marketing. His name was Bernays, Solomon Bernays. Right, Freud's schwer, like the Freud's family was was from a Rabbanisha family, and in in Mrs. Freud's family, the Bernays family, Chacham Bernays was like the chief rabbi of, right? That was Freud's wife's I, family. Really, I never knew that. Yeah, so his nephew took all of Freud's ideas of psychology and understanding drives, and that's how we have modern PR today. That's why how he knows how to, how to I, get I, us I never to buy knew stuff. that. Yeah, I never knew that. Solomon Bernays. Yeah, it's very right, interesting. But let's talk about OCD. Enough about enough about. Let's PR. talk about OCD for a few minutes, and then we'll we'll continue next time. So yes. Um. Okay. So the, the I guess the we can start with the, the DSM criteria for OCD. Um. We can start with that, even though the, you know the DSM is not, you know, the Bible that people make it out to be. At least in my opinion, I don't. You know, I, I use I it agree. for some 
I use it for billing purposes, and you know, right. it's it's a good source of information. Yeah. Um, you have to know what to take, what not to take. So yeah. diagnosis with OCD, um, presence of obsessions, compulsions, or both, and then they define what obsessions are and what compulsions are. So That's I'm not going to. Re- yeah. Go ahead. How how would you define obsessions? So, okay, you know what, let's let, let me read them because I'm reading anyway. Okay. It says, so obsessions okay. are defined by one and two. One is recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges, or impulses that are experienced at some time during the disturbance as intrusive and unwanted, and right. that most individuals cause marked anxiety or distress. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, the individual attempts to ignore or suppress such, such thoughts, urges, or images, or to neutralize them with some other thought or action. Right, and that and that thought or action is a compulsion. So exactly, i.e., so, it says by performing a compulsion. Right. So, so if a person is fixated, let's say a person is a huge fan of, you know, I, I don't know, Miami Boys Choir, right? And so they're fixated and they're making TikToks about it, which apparently is a thing now, and that's all they think about all day. That may be an obsessive quality, but it's not an obsession when it comes to the DSM criteria. Exactly, because, it's not intrusive, it's not unwanted, and they're happy right. with it, and they're not trying to, obsession is right, exactly. They're that's, not trying to suppress it or get rid of it. Right, so right. compulsions are defined um, by repetitive, one and two, repetitive, again, I'm reading from the, from the DSM-5, um, repetitive behaviors like hand-washing, ordering, checking, or mental acts, um, praying, counting, repeating words silently. I, I actually like this definition a lot. Um, that the individual feels driven to perform in response to an obsession or according to rules that must be applied rigidly. Right. And it's rules that they make in their own mind. It, it, right. It's self-proscribed and proclaimed rules that they must abide by, this my, I'm talking now, and or else they'll have to repeat the compulsion. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's not rules that you know anybody else makes or that society adheres to per se. Um, it's their own rules, right? Right, for, like, like for example, with the hand-washing, You'll have someone who, let's say, let's just go through the whole OCD with hand washing. That's a classic example. Um, so a person has an intrusive thought or feeling. Again, I'm, I'm not reading that from anything. This is just um, based on experience. So let's you have a client who has intrusive thought or feeling that they are impure, dirty, contaminated, etc. Mm-hmm. And that thought is coming. It's an irrational thought. They're trying to get rid of that thought. And the only way, let's say in this client's example, is to do, to do hand washing. And their hand washing has to be done um, for five minutes. And it has to be done in a certain, way, a certain way, in a certain amount of soap, in a certain amount of time drying it off. And that's the only thing that can reduce the obsession is through engaging in the compulsion. Right. A hallmark of a compulsion is that it, it never is enough. Also, like you can you can feel the relief from the obsession for a short period of time, but it's not enough because you're trying to get rid of something that's imaginary. So it, that's another hallmark of a compulsion, right? The feeling. Right. It. I mean, it's going to come back. It'll give you relief for the time being, but then it's going to come back and you're going to have to re-engage in the compulsion. Right. That's, um, you know, right. that's really what OCD is. And then we'll, I guess we'll go over this again next time. And then, you know, that, I think this is a good hakdama. Yeah. So So let me just read number two from the OCD. The compulsions are defined by number two, the behaviors or mental acts are aimed at preventing or reducing anxiety or distress or preventing some dreaded event or situation. However, these behaviors or mental acts are not connected in a realistic way with what they are designed to neutralize or prevent. Right. So they're they're never good enough. 
right? Right. It, it, because they're 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 not really related. If a person's hands are really dirty, or if a surgeon is scrubbing their hands before surgery, that's not a compulsion. Right. That's to make sure nobody gets an infection. Or if during you know it's interesting during the in the beginning of COVID, um, so when people were washing their hands a lot, um, you know it's interesting. I would love to see the research on how OCD. And I actually had one client. It's interesting. Um, who had OCD and his OCD got much better with COVID. Oh, me too. That is what I saw also. It was fascinating, fascinating. Because finally everybody caught up. Everybody caught up. I had another shot also because now there's real stuff going on. So right. they're able to have a relief from their imaginary things. It, it, it was a, a, such an amazing thing to see. It was fascinating. It was fascinating. So I, I think maybe um, just as, as we're winding down here, I just want to point out for part two of this of OCD and halacha, like that, if we look at at the um, at what the compulsions are, like praying, counting, uh, repeating words, hand washing, ordering, checking, like all of these things come up regularly in practical halacha, right? Making right. sure you're clean, and we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk next time. Um, we've both kind of. Looked at this stuff. I, I actually saw, I think I sent you, I saw this, this yeah. Truva Rabasha Weiss about saying Kriyashma properly or saying a bracha properly, washing your hands properly, mikvah, all these other things, and talking about how they fit uh, with OCD. Right. And the stipler has letters about it also, which are amazing. Um, right? And no, it's interesting. That's why OCD and halacha and Yiddishkeit and Torah become so, it becomes so complicated because if it's not connected to halacha or to Torah, so you know, you could, it's easier to work with the client um, in terms of showing the, it's purely irrational, right? If you have a person, you know, but once you're in the realm of halakha, there is some truth to certain things. Yes, you have to be clean and you have to do X, Y, and Z, but you don't have to do A, B, C, D, E, and F. Right. And what's the line between the two? So that's, that's where, that's what, that's when it gets very um, complicated and complex. Right. I think, I think also just, just one last idea which is uh, covered in this book, Sanity and Sanctity, is the question of whether or not, you know, halacha creates OCD. And of, of course, there are many, many people who show halacha don't have OCD. So we're going to explore the relationship with that. I mean, it's, yeah. like it's a pleasure as usual. Same every time. Okay, have a great rest of your day. Um, thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next time. Yeah, Saigazan. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? The Maverick Podcasting Network makes creating and running your podcast easy and fun. Visit maverickpodcasting.com to get started today.